I want to start off today with a little bit of a deep question, all right? And, and when I ask it, like, it is deep, and, 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 and I know that. Um, and, and here's the question. Have you ever looked in the mirror and not liked the person looking back at you? Right? Like, let's just go for the jugular here, all right? Have you ever looked in the mirror and not liked the person looking back at you? Have you ever been disappointed in the person looking back at you? Maybe, maybe that person is a little too controlling than you thought they should be, right? And, and maybe they've got this fear of the unknown that makes them want to control what they do know. And maybe that person looking back in the mirror is a little more harsh, a little more aggressive, a little more abrupt than you think they should be. Maybe that person looking back at you in the mirror is weaker than you think they should be. And maybe because of their own insecurities, that person looking back at you in the mirror knows that they need to make some decisions but just can't because of those insecurities. Or maybe the person looking back at you in the mirror is more scared than you think they should be. And so it's not the fear of the unknown that has them scared. It's the fear of what they do know that has them scared. And what they do know has them scared enough that they've put certain pieces of their life on pause when you know that person looking back at you in the mirror should hit play instead, but they're scared. Or maybe, maybe the person looking back at you in the mirror is just a whole lot older than you think they should be. Right? Maybe they're just a whole lot more tired than you think they should be. More overweight than you think they should be. And maybe that person looking back at you in the mirror maybe lets emotions make decisions for them more than wisdom. Maybe the person you think that should be looking back at you should be more strong and secure and healthy than they are. But the person looking back at you in the mirror sometimes is a person who just disappoints you. Y'all, this happens to me sometimes when I look in the mirror. And those examples that I just gave, I didn't have to make them up, right? That's what happens when I look in the mirror sometimes. And if any of this resonates with you, I've got some really good news for you because what we're gonna see today will help. And so let me ask you a question that's specifically to you. Do you like the person looking back at you in the mirror? When you look in the mirror, do you like that person looking back at you in the mirror? Because today, what we're going to talk about is that question. And if any part of that resonated with you, then this entire series that we're starting today is going to be good for all of us. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be good for me. It's going to be good for us. Because today, we start a series called Eclipse. And what we're doing is we're looking through a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people, who, to a church, uh, in a place called Philippi. And, and the letter that we have is the letter to the Philippians. And, and, and what we're going to see as we work our way through this letter is that Paul talks about one thing over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it's mentioned about 16 times in the four chapters of this book. And it is this very elusive emotion called joy. That's what we're going to see time and time again. But, but listen, we can't just call a series joy, right? That's way too obvious. But here's why we're calling it Eclipse. Okay, imagine with me that this is the earth. 
which is easy to do because it looks like the earth, right? So we've got the earth. Now imagine with me that this is the moon. A little harder to do because it looks like a tennis ball, but as we know, the moon orbits around the earth, right? We're all, we all know that. I don't have any flat earth people in here, do I? Okay, good. Don't raise your hand. We'll just come up to me later and we'll talk. That's a real thing. You know that, don't you? Like, it's crazy. So, um, um, I mean, it's not crazy. I mean, yeah, no, it is crazy. <laughs> so so the, the, the moon rotates around the earth. Now then, imagine with me that this entire back wall is the sun, right? Which is a little easy to do because we've got all these lights up here, and so it's pretty bright. And, and uh, by the way, thanks to Cam for making all these. Isn't that incredible? So he's going to be sleeping this week, but... Last week, he made all these, which is fantastic. So, but imagine this whole back wall is the sun, which proportionally is about right because the sun is 400 times larger than the moon. And just to give you a perspective of that, if I was 400 times larger than I am, I would be taller than any building in the United States. I'd be over 2,400 feet tall. The tallest building in the world is 2,700 feet. So that's how big the sun is compared to the moon. But when an eclipse happens, as the moon orbits around the earth, it actually blocks the light of the sun. And we all experience this. We experienced this, what, a few months ago where where we got to experience an eclipse. And what happens is if you're in the shadow of that moon, if you're in the shadow that the moon casts as it goes between the sun and the earth, you get to experience an eclipse, and, and, and what we're going to see as we work through the book of Philippians is that this question of how does something so small dim the light of something so big? Because looking where you are, there's no way that this should dim the light of all that. But it does because of one word, perspective. That where you are determines what you see. And so for us who live here in the mountains, when the, when the solar eclipse happened, you know, we could drive 30 minutes an hour and be in the shadow of the moon and experience an, a total and complete eclipse, right? But if you weren't in that shadow, everything was normal. Everything was fine because of a matter of perspective. And what we're going to see is that joy, Paul is going to show us that joy is very much the same way. That if the earth is you and the sun is this relationship that you have with God based on the finished work of Christ, that joy that's found only in God is available to you fully and all the time. And yet, we let these little things block that light. These little things that there should be no way that this should block all the light of that. And it does. And it steals joy. From us, And so what we're going to do as we walk through the book of Philippians is we're going to talk about what these little things are that dim the light of that big thing. And that's why as we call this, as we work our way through this series of eclipse, we're calling it how to experience the light of God in the midst of darkness. Because when this little thing covers the light of that big thing, it's an eclipse in our soul. And that can be dangerous. So... We're going to be in Philippians 
chapter one, verses one and two on page 816. If you'd use the Bible that's in front of you. And listen, if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have it. But it's on page 816 in that Bible, or like Carol said, you can use the Bible app. And today we're gonna be dealing with this question in particular, this this one moon that passes in front of the sun for us, is, is what do we do when we don't like the person that we see in the mirror. But let me tell you a little bit about this book of Philippians and why, why I chose this one to be the one to, to talk to us about joy. Uh, because like I said, there was this church leader uh, back in the day named Paul, and he wrote a letter to a group of people who lived in Philippi. And Philippi is near where current day Greece is. And what Paul would do is he would travel around the ancient world starting churches. And so he started that church there in Philippi. It was actually one of his favorite churches by the language that he uses and the way he talks about them. Like he really loved the people of this church and, and loved this church. And yet he writes this letter to the Philippians um, and, and what's interesting, and this is why it's interesting that he talks about joy so much, because where he is when he writes this letter is a place that you would not expect joy to be his emotion, because Paul is in Rome, right? That sounds fun, pizza, pasta, but he is in jail in Rome when he writes this letter. Now, I know when I say jail, and I mention the ancient world, you might think of this dark, damp, jail cell, kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean trying to get the dog to bring you the key and stuff like that, or, or this beam of light shining down on the skeleton of his cellmate. Like, like, that's not the jail that Paul was in. Paul was actually under house arrest. And what that meant is that he did have a place to live, but he couldn't work, and he was most likely chained to a guard 24-7. And so what, the way he got Food and the way he was able to live was because other people had to take care of him. Other people had to support him during that time. And so even though he was in jail and it was house arrest, he was still very limited into what he could do. He still had plenty of opportunities to let his joy in the Lord be covered up by the circumstances around him. And yet he wrote a letter to this Philippian church telling them about joy the joy that he has experienced in the Lord. That's why he's the perfect person to teach us about how to not let these little things dim the light of this big thing. He's the perfect one to teach us how to experience the light of God in the midst of darkness. And he's the perfect one today to show us what do we do when we don't like the person looking back at us in the mirror. Well, let's look at these first few words, literally, of, of the letter in Philippians. Chapter one says this, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy, so we talked a lot about Paul. Timothy is a, a disciple of Paul's. He learned, he's learning from Paul how to lead the church, how to, how to share the faith, and, and how, to, how to live the Christian life. And later, Timothy will have his own church, and you'll see letters from Paul to Timothy, and those are called First and Second Timothy. That's this Timothy. He's with Paul just to help him out. Chances are, uh, he actually wrote this letter, like transcribed it. Paul dictated it, and Timothy wrote it down because there's evidence that as Paul got older, his eyesight got worse and worse and worse, which means his handwriting would become illegible, and so Timothy was probably the one who actually penned this letter that Paul dictated to him, which is why he gets credit in the beginning. But Paul uses an interesting word to describe him and Timothy. And he uses the word servant. 
Now, what this means is exactly what you think it means. It means that it is a position of humility where their entire life of a servant is dedicated to the benefit of someone else. That's what a servant is, a position of humility where all of their actions are for the benefit of someone else. Now, what's interesting is Paul could have used various titles to describe himself, right? Because if he had a business card today, his card would have a whole lot of letters after his name. He has a lot of credentials. He could have called himself an apostle, which he does in other letters. He could have called himself their pastor, their teacher. He could have called himself the CEO of this new movement called the church, right? He could have called himself their mentor, their spiritual father. He could have called himself many things, but he uses the word servant. And and, and so what this means for us in this context is that when Paul looks in the mirror, he sees a servant looking back at him. A servant, in this case, to this church in Philippi, to the Philippians. And I would imagine that Paul liked what he saw, that he liked the servant that he saw. And the question is this, how can a guy in prison, chained to a Roman guard everywhere he goes, how can he, number one, experience this joy found in the Lord, and two, see himself as a servant to this church? How can Paul look in the mirror and like who's looking back? Well, I think we can see in the next verse because it's a clue of how he not only sees himself, but how he sees those in Philippi and how he sees believers in general. Because I think that's how we can like who we see in the mirror as well. Look at the rest of verse one. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. And so what he does is he uses a particular word to describe not only the church leadership, the overseers and the deacons, the elders and the deacons, but to describe everybody in the Philippian church. What is the word that he uses? Saints. Saints. Now, here's what I think is interesting, that Paul specifically called out the leaders and everybody else, and he separates those two. Do you know why I think he did that? Because I've been sitting where you're sitting. And it's easy to think that the pastor and the church staff, okay, they're the holy people, and, 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 and I'm just trying to get by, right? I'm just trying to get along. Surely the, the, the leaders of the church, I mean, they're spending hours a day praying and reading their Bible and walking in the Spirit and sharing the gospel with everyone they know. Like, they've got this Christian thing down, right? So it's easy to think they're the saints, and I'm something else. Well, Paul's very clear to say, listen, this is to every person in this church in Philippi. This is to every person who calls on the name of Jesus. This word, saint. Now, are these people in Philippi making wrong choices in their lives? Of course they are. They are are sinning in the church. There's conflict in this church. And we're going to see this as this letter unfolds, but also as we work our way through this letter and all of this We're going to see Paul refer to this church and the people in this church by this title of saints. Why does he do this? He does it because of this. Paul sees them as God sees them. Paul sees this church 
as God sees this church. Paul sees himself as God sees himself. When Paul looks in the mirror, he sees what God sees. And my hope for us today is that when you leave this place, you will look in the mirror and see what Paul sees. When you leave this place, you will look in the mirror and you will see what God sees, not only in you, but in the person sitting next to you as well. Because what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce you to some theological terms. And those theological terms will give us a grid for why Paul sees what he sees, right? And what I hope to do is apply these theological terms um, and to give them some context. And so the first word that I wanna introduce to you is the word justification. Now justification is, is a word that describes the transaction between you and God when Jesus comes into your life. It's a word that describes a transaction between you and God when you say yes to Jesus. Now, let me give you a little backstory to this, right? Because when you were born, you had the card stacked against you. Thanks to the very beginning of your Bible, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, God placed Adam and Eve in this garden, and their job in this garden was to work and to experience the joy of the Lord. God himself walked with them every day in the garden, and they got to have this sweet time of communion and fellowship with God. That was what the garden is, but there was also this boundary in the garden, right? And they were told that they could not eat the fruit of one particular tree. So when God laid that boundary down, sure enough, before you get to chapter three, guess what happens? That's the one thing they wanted to do, is they wanted to taste. And I love that word. They didn't want to devour it. They didn't want to cut it up and dip it in chocolate first. They just wanted a taste of it. And that's what they did. And when they did that, it made a shift between God and humanity. It created this this chasm. It created this gap between God and humanity that only God could fix. Because in that moment of rebellion, sin entered the world. And what that did for them is, is that's when it says, and they were naked and ashamed. That before that moment, there was literally nothing separating them from each other and separating them from God. There was no shame. And the moment that they tasted that fruit, shame entered the garden. And so when God showed up, what he did is he, is he, is he sacrificed animals, he covered their shame, he covered their nakedness, and then they had to leave the garden. That place where they got to experience the joy and the presence of God changed and they had to leave. And from that moment on, it also shifted what is common for all of humanity, that now sin is this common reality for humanity, for all of us. That when you were born, sin was already in the world. And this had an effect on your relationship with God. It caused this separation. And this separation was so big and so expansive that only God could fix it. And this rift in the relationship between God and humanity can't be fixed by our good behavior. No matter how many good deeds you do, think like the Grand Canyon, right? The rift between God and humanity is bigger than that. And consider every good deed you do to be a rock. Consider it to even be a boulder. How many good deeds would you have to do to make a bridge from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other. 
because this rift between humanity and God is bigger. And yet, we try. We try by our good efforts to get God to love us and to get God to, to be pleased with us. And that is the story of humanity. But God fixed the problem we created. God fixed the problem that Adam and Eve created. And so not only do we have their rebellion that caused this gap, their sin, sin entered the world. We've got our own sins that has contributed to that, none of which can, can balance the scale in our favor enough. And so God sent his son Jesus to be that bridge between God and humanity. Sent his son to be the one to cover that bridge. I mean, to, to span that gap. How? This is how, and this is important because this is where justification comes into play. When God sent his son to earth, Jesus lived a perfect life, right? We keep trying to do good, but the problem is we do bad right along with it. Jesus just did good. He did everything God wanted him to do and did nothing that God didn't want him to do. He lived a life not only devoted to God in behavior, but devoted to God in heart. He lived the life of a saint, and yet, he died with the punishment of a criminal, right? Because he was crucified on a cross. And a Roman crucifixion is for criminals. And so you have this perfect Savior who died the death of a criminal. And so he died with the punishment of a sinner, although he lived the life of a saint. That's Jesus. Then the resurrection happened. And the resurrection proved that everything he said and everything he did was right. Because when someone raises from the dead, you pay attention. And that's our Jesus. And what he did is, is, is this great exchange that we get the benefit of. Because Jesus died the death of a sinner, but he lived as a saint. And when we believe Jesus is the bridge between God and humanity, not us, not our own efforts, but when we believe Jesus is that bridge, then what happens is this exchange. But although we deserve the punishment of a criminal, of a sinner, we get the reward of the life of a saint. Because he lived the life of a saint and yet took on our punishment as a sinner. That's the exchange. And so when God sees you, when you have said yes to Jesus, yes to him being the bridge between God and humanity, when he sees you, he sees his son. And because of that, you get to live the life as a saint, although you deserve the punishment of a sinner. That's our gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that you get the benefit of his life, the life of a saint, although you deserve the punishment of a sinner. You deserve the punishment of a criminal. And when you say yes to Jesus, the power and penalty of that sin is removed, and in its place you get this Jesus-bought relationship with God that is similar to the garden, but better. Because you don't have to hang out in the garden to experience God. You, because of Jesus, have God with you everywhere you go, anytime you go there. 
That's our relationship with God, as it is an all-the-time, everyday relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Now, if this is the first time this is making sense to you and you thought Christianity was about do's and don'ts, I'm gonna introduce another term to you, and that's called salvation. And salvation is realizing that Jesus is the bridge between God and humanity, not you. And so if this is you, and today is the day you say yes to Jesus, then today is the day of your salvation. And at the moment of your salvation, the moment you say yes to Jesus, justification is what happens fully and completely, that God sees you as his son, because this is what justification is. That justification is this, it's in Jesus God sees you as a saint, not a sinner. And that happens the moment you say yes to Jesus. That happens, for those of us who have already done that, that happens the moment you said yes to Jesus. He now sees you as a saint, not a sinner. But I'm gonna introduce you to another term, sanctification, right? For those of you who like big words, you are loving this message, aren't you? Right, justification, salvation, justification happens right then, and then sanctification. Sanctification is the process of understanding and coming to a fuller knowledge of your justification. The fact that God sees you as a saint, sanctification is the process of that God seeing you as a saint seeping into every area of your soul, every area of your mind and heart, every area of your behavior. Sanctification is this. It is the alignment of how God sees us and how we behave. And sanctification is the process of the alignment with how God sees us and how we behave. A way to think about it is this. Justification is the fact that God sees you as a what? As a saint. Sanctification, so justification is how God sees you. Sanctification is how your neighbor sees you. Right? Now, if I were to say, does your neighbor see you as a saint or a sinner, you probably wouldn't be as confident to answer that question as you were about justification, right? That's the way it should be. Your sanctification will always need sanctifying. As long as you are walking this earth, this sanctification process of letting your justification seep into every area of your heart and mind and soul and behavior is an ongoing process. Your sanctification will always need sanctifying. And so here's a question to see where you are in this alignment. Right, and I'm gonna ask a question in a way that I hate it when people ask questions this way, but I'm the one asking the question, so I get to answer it any way that I ask it any way that I want. Which of these statements do you consider to be more true? Right? I am a sinner saved by grace, or I am a saint who sins. Which one do you consider to be more true? Now, I'm gonna give you a little, a little tip from the counseling room. Right now, some of you are battling with your head and your heart, right? Your head knows the right answer because I've kind of talked about one word in particular quite a bit up there, right? Your heart might be saying, yeah, but. You see, our thoughts, our head tells us what we know to be true, but our feelings tell us what we believe to be true. And this is where I wanna hone in today. Which statement up here do you believe to be true? Are you a sinner saved by grace or are you a saint who sins? Because one of these statements 
is full of joy and the other one isn't. Because here's how to experience the light of God in the midst of darkness. Here's how, what to do. Here, here's what helps when you look in the mirror and don't like who you see because there is one true statement up there for those of us who are in Jesus. If you are in Jesus, there is one true statement up there and it's this. It's that you are a saint, not a sinner. That God sees you as a saint, not a sinner. Now, your neighbor may see you as something else. You may see you as something else. God sees you as a saint. If Paul was standing here and he wrote a letter to Fellowship Asheville, he would call you a saint because God sees you as a saint. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. This is your identity. This is who you are in Christ. Yes, the person looking back at you in the mirror might be fearful, might be insecure, might be tired, might be overweight, might be undisciplined, might be harsh, might just be old, right? But that doesn't define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. And when God sees you because of Jesus, he sees a saint. A saint who sins? Yes. Paul, actually, the guy, you know, that, were, that wrote this letter, the guy that calls him a saint, later he will call himself the chief of sinners, Right, So this doesn't negate the fact that your behavior may still be sinful. This doesn't negate the fact that your sanctification is still in process, but the way God sees you as a saint is, is, is solid. When you look in the mirror, you can with confidence say, in Jesus, God sees that person in the mirror as a saint, not a sinner. And because God sees you as a saint, it has this very powerful effect. It had this effect for Paul, and I think it'll have this effect for you because this is what it did for Paul, and this is what it does for you and for me, that for Paul, his sainthood by God, the fact that God sees him as a saint, led to his servanthood for others, right? The fact that, that he sees himself as a saint is why he can say that he and Timothy are servants to this church. Even though they're sitting in a jail in the house arrest in Rome, even though they're sitting there because of their confidence in the Lord, because they didn't let those circumstances that they're surrounding themselves, that are surrounding them, they didn't let those overshadow this huge truth about God, they can look at that church in Philippi and go, and by the way, we're here to serve you. We're not here to lord stuff over you. You don't serve us. We serve you. Because Paul saw himself as a saint, he could call himself a servant. And what Paul did, he did for the benefit of others. This is where his joy came from, was from his identity. This is what his sanctification led to, was his ability to serve. This is where it comes from for you. This is where it comes from for me. And y'all, I've got to tell you as a church, we've got to get this right. And here's why. Here's what service looks like at a base ground level. And this is going to sound so like self-centered, but, but work with me here, all right? Just follow me. Don't give up on me here. But here's how this plays out. And here's why we got to get this right. Because how you see you determines how you treat me. And how I see me determines how I treat you. 
This is why we've got to get this right. Because the first level of serving one another is how we love one another, how we treat one another. Which is why Paul can say this in verse two. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So when Paul starts off this letter to the Philippians, and what's interesting, and and I've just read books on this. I haven't actually done the actual study on this, but I believe the people of the books that I read, they have done the study on this. Most of these New Testament letters follow a regular format of how letters were written back in these days. Right, like if this was an email, Paul would use a subject line and a two line and and he would use where you write the text and he might even have an automatic signature at the bottom. But what Paul would do is he would take those regular formats of writing and insert the gospel in everywhere he could. And so if this was an email from Paul and it followed the regular thing, he wouldn't just say, uh, this is from Paul. He would say, this is from Paul, a servant. And he wouldn't just say, this is to Fred. He would say, this is to Fred, a saint in Jesus Christ. And when he looks at this church, he calls himself a servant. He calls them saints. And he goes, oh, and by the way, The way this looks in our relationship is grace and peace to one another because God has shown us grace and peace. And because he has made me a saint, because I can serve you, I'm gonna give you the grace and peace that God has given me. Because Paul saw himself as a saint, he could give them grace and peace. And what he's asking is if you see yourself as saints, guess what? You get to give grace and peace to each other. Let me tell you how this looks in my life. Because there are times, and I did this at lunch uh, earlier this week, I was having lunch with a guy, and uh, we were at Moe's, and the wings are so good. You know, it was like as close to the garden as you can get. And we were sitting there and having this great time, and he's another pastor here in town, and, and he was talking, and he was talking about something, and honestly, I checked out, Right? I wasn't even focused on the wings. My mind was someplace else. And I caught myself because I have a good friend who who told me once, he said, hey, I've noticed um, every once in a while in conversations, I can just tell you're someplace else. Do you have friends like that who know you sometimes better than you know yourself? They are good to have around and bad, but mostly good. But, But he said, I noticed in certain situations, you just kind of withdraw. Why is that? And part of the reason is this, because I forget who's really looking at me back in the mirror. I forget that there is a saint looking back at me back in the mirror. And that saint, that, that, that Fred whose identity is in Jesus can give grace and peace to the person sitting across from me even when I don't feel like it. That's what it looks like for me. That's just one of the ways it looks like for me. In those moments, I need to remember who God sees in the mirror. What's yours? What does it look like for you when you forget who that person is looking back at you in the mirror? Because church, what would happen? What would happen if, if grace and peace, we extended that to each other? What, actually, what would happen if grace and peace that we extended to each other actually became the litmus test for us for how we see ourselves in Christ? What if that became the way we look at each other, that I see myself as a saint and I see you as a saint and because of that, we can give grace 
in peace to each other? What if when you lose your temper, because here's where I'm gonna get really, really like up in our business, all right? What if when somebody does something that causes you to react in a way that isn't graceful and isn't peaceful, right? Anybody have those people in your life? That they just know what that button is and they push it? And then you have some of those people that push that button just because they like pushing that button? What if, what if it became a question of it not being their fault but my opportunity? What if the way we responded to people wasn't based on the way people treated us, but the way God treated us? What if we responded with grace and peace, no matter what was being directed at us? What if those moments are your opportunity to see yourself as God sees you so you can treat them the way God treated you? What if when fears and doubts and insecurities maybe move you to want to gossip or move you to want to slander or move you to want to sin against someone, that that's when you realize, okay, this isn't their fault, it's actually my opportunity. What if, church, can I propose something really scary to you? What if we dropped out of our thinking and we dropped out of our vocabulary altogether, it's your fault? What if instead we said, it's not your fault, it's my opportunity? You know what would happen? We would extend grace and peace to one another in a way that would seem miraculous, because it is. Because the gospel is miraculous. What that would mean for some of you is that the blame would stop. Because some of you have been blaming people your whole life. And although what they did was vicious and what they did was awful, you can't let them go. If it's not their fault and it's your opportunity, that changes things. Because God sees you as a saint. And maybe today is the day you let that truth seep into that area of your life. And in your head, you say, you know what? It's not their fault anymore. The way I behave right now isn't their fault anymore. It's my opportunity. It's not their fault the way I behave. It's now my opportunity to be the saint that God has called me to be. Because let me tell you the difference that this would make. It would make a difference in your home. It's not your spouse's fault that you lose your temper. Now, they might give you some really good reasons to lose your temper. Don't get me wrong, right? But it's your opportunity to live in grace and peace. Your kids, your kids, what if it's not their fault, but it's your opportunity? Teachers, co-workers, friends, if we live this out, if we live out this identity, we are in many ways and can still be even better a church that extends grace to one another, which means when we fail, we allow others to recover. We don't 
We don't excommunicate because of failure. As a matter of fact, in our church bylaws, we don't even have the word church discipline. We have church restoration because that's the goal of discipline is restoration, not punishment. That's grace to one another. It means that we would understand we are still gonna fight and we are still gonna disagree. We, we don't live in, 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 in like denial of that, but we fight hard for peace. Y'all, this weekend, I was supposed to get a package delivered to my house on Friday, but for some reason, the post office said they felt uncomfortable leaving it on my front porch, uh, so they didn't deliver it. Instead, I had to schedule a re-delivery, and so I go online to schedule this re-delivery, and I fill out all this stuff, and I hit schedule re-delivery, and it says that there is an invalid character in my responses. I was like, invalid character? So I go, and I'm like, oh, that's my name. Okay, that's my address. That's my phone number. That's my email address. And then it had this little text box that you could write instructions. So I wrote, please leave the package on the porch. Thank you, exclamation point. And I was like, maybe, maybe it's something in there. And so I, I deleted it. Well, I deleted one character, the exclamation point, and put a period in, and it worked. See, the post office doesn't want anybody yelling, <laughs> right? Even if it thinks, they don't want people yelling. As a church, we don't live under the delusion that we're not gonna fight. We know there's gonna be exclamation points, but because of the gospel, we know that we're gonna fight just as hard for peace. That's what this looks like because I'm a saint in Jesus, in Jesus, you are saints. And the grace and peace we have been given is the grace and peace we can give. And so y'all, let's be that church. Because that church who lets people fail and recover well, that church that embraces conflict and fights for peace, that church is a church that God is calling us to be and we have done that and we will do more and more of that. That kind of church is a church that changes the neighborhood that it's in. That kind of church is a church that changes the city that it's in. That kind of church is a church that actually believes the gospel we've been given and actually believes that we are saints because God says so. Let's pray.